Welcome to The Word at First Pres. During Advent, we are doing a sermon series called The Road to Bethlehem. The goal of this series is to paint a total and complete picture of the world into which Jesus was born. I hope you enjoy. Well, our first scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. And you're going to see a link here between the two scriptures. We're going to read from Matthew and from Luke. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was a descendant of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren, and both were getting on in years. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, we're going to jump directly to... Our second scripture, which is Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And it says, In the time of King Herod, do you notice the link there? Uh, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. Now when King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born, and they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it had been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. And then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising, until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw that star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. And on entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I know it's not super adventy of me to read that particular passage because Jesus is already born and all that, but you're going to see why I read that and why that matters for what we're doing right now. So I want to start by saying, uh, going back to when I was a young boy growing up in the Presbyterian Church, I can tell you that I understood that Christmas was about two things, presents and Santa. Those are the two things that I understood Christmas to be about for sure. And it wasn't until I was like nine or ten years old that I even understood at all that Christmas was about Jesus' birth. Like that was the first time that I got it. But even then it didn't change my focus too much. It was still presence and Santa. Do you all know what I'm saying? Do you know what I'm talking about? So as I got older and I got into high school, that was where really my focus tended to shift quite a bit. And that's where I started to become curious. I was like, well, what is this really all about on Christmas? And when I got to college, that's when I actually started doing religious studies. And I was like, you know what, maybe I should read the Bible and figure out what is actually going on here. And what's fascinating is when I actually sat down, I opened the Bible, I started reading it. What I realized was that this whole celebration that we go through is based on 
two books of the Bible. That's the only two books in the New Testament that actually mention Jesus' birth. And it's actually only two chapters out of each of those Gospels. So it's a very short amount of material for Jesus' origin story. There's not a whole lot there. And it's the basis, when we come in and do our Christmas pageants, it's all based on that, just that small amount of information. Now, when I became a pastor, what I realized is that most people in the church, most of you all, probably know that biblical story fairly well. Am I right about that? Like, you have a sense of what that story is, right? But what I came to realize is that most people in the church, not you all, of course, but other Christians, so uh, most people didn't have a real sense of what was going on in the world at the time that Jesus was born. Like, what were the events that were actually happening? What were the big things that were going on? What was happening religiously, socially, politically, right? Economically, what was going on with that at that time? Most people, if you ask them, they couldn't tell you. And so that's the purpose of our series during Advent, is that I want to paint a full and complete portrait for you of what was happening when Jesus was born. What was the world into which he was born? And so each week, what we're going to do is we're going to take an element of that world and we're going to do a deep dive into it. And we're going to talk about what was happening, what was going on. And what you're going to see is each week we're going to get closer and closer to the moment of Jesus's birth. And that's why this particular sermon series is called The Road to Bethlehem. Now, the best way to understand this series is to think of it geographically. So we're going to start broad, we're going to start really, really wide, right, with the world, and then we're going to kind of get closer and closer and closer until eventually we get to where Jesus was born, according to the Gospels, in Bethlehem. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? You with me so far? Okay, so to begin our sermon series today, what I want to do is I want to start broad. I want to start with a big perspective. We're going to start by talking about literally the world into which Jesus was born, which was the Roman Empire. And what's important for you to understand is that you can't really appreciate Jesus' birth unless you understand the formation of the Roman Empire. Those two things are integrally linked together. And so we're going to talk about the beginning of the Roman Empire. We have to go back and actually talk about one of the most famous Roman generals of all time. You know who this person is. It's Julius Caesar. Heard of him before? If you haven't, he's on your Caesar salad. So that's, that's why you would know who he is. Okay, Julius Caesar. So who was he? He was this famous Roman general. And what he did was he took his armies and he captured all that area in yellow that's what he took over with his armies. So he was very, very successful. And he gained quite a reputation. Now around 58, or 50 BC, don't want to get too far out of myself, 50 BC, what happens is he gets a messenger from the Roman Senate. So you see where Rome is down there? They send a messenger up to him and they're like, hey, Caesar, we would like you to come back to Rome and disband your army. So he doesn't like that too much. And so his army, by the way, is loyal to him. And he's like, oh, we're going to go home all right. So he goes home and he decides to overthrow the government because he felt that the government was corrupt and not serving the needs of the people. So you have to understand that from the moment Caesar took power, 
He was beloved by the people. They loved him. They thought he was the greatest thing ever. And the reason why is because he implemented a number of political and social reforms. First thing he did is he implemented a new calendar. It's a calendar we still use to this day. That calendar that he came up with is what we use to this day. And that was a big deal because this universal calendar, it meant that farmers were now able to plant at the same time. They could plant, they could harvest, everybody was on the same schedule. That was big. Second thing that he did, you saw that map, right? The Roman Republic, they owned a lot of land. They had taken over all this land. So what he does is he says, look, if you're part of the Roman Republic, guess what? You're now a citizen of Rome. Because before they didn't do that. They just took you in. He made them citizens. And then he started stitching all of these different things together. Like he started stitching all of these different areas together and territories. And then the final thing he did is he started redistributing the land. And what I mean by that is he took the land from the patricians, the really wealthy aristocrats, And he gave it away, mostly to his soldiers who had served underneath him. Which, as you can imagine, made him super popular among the wealthy elite. They really liked him a lot. So what ends up happening is that he's loved by the people. He's hated by the wealthy. And he didn't care about them. He didn't, you know, usually you would kowtow to the wealthy. You'd say, hey, what do you think about this? He did not care about them at all. And then they thought, well, maybe Caesar will just go away at some point. But then he was declared dictator for life. And that's when they were like, okay, we're going to do something about this guy. And so that's when they start to conspire. And about 60 aristocrats, they get together and they decide they're going to assassinate him. And on March 15th, which is known as what? The Ides of March. In 44 BC, Caesar was stabbed to death by 60 aristocrats on the stairs of the Roman Senate. Now, Caesar dies. This ignites a massive civil war in Rome, and it's between two competing factions. The first is a man named Mark Antony, close personal friend of Caesar, tried to stop the assassination, was unsuccessful. The second person is a man named Gaius Octavian. Octavian was the nephew of Caesar. It was the person to whom Caesar had left everything in his will. So Gaius Octavian... As soon as he inherits everything, he becomes the wealthiest person in Rome. Very easily, he has the money to raise an army. This other guy, Mark Antony, he shacks up with Cleopatra down in Egypt. Now, Cleopatra, by the way, important to know on this, was uh, Julius Caesar's former lover. So he's getting together with his friend's girlfriend, basically, and he's hoping that the might of the Egyptian army will be enough to take down Gaius Octavian. So they start fighting, and the fighting lasts for five civil wars, basically. They have war after war after war. They, like, do a war, take a break, do a war, take a break. Seventeen years. Eventually, Octavian is the victor. He overtakes Mark Antony and Cleopatra. And he is declared the emperor of the Roman Empire in 27 BC. And he's given the name Augustus, which means venerable or majestic in Latin. Now, Augustus, he was a very, very smart leader. He's a very good leader. And he realized that the people who he was now in control of, they had been in war and battle for the better part of two decades. And what he wanted was for his rule to be defined not by war or violence, but by peace. But there were some major obstacles standing in the way of this. And perhaps one of the biggest obstacles 
was the fact that many of these territories that Rome had kind of sucked up, they didn't want to be territories of the Roman Empire any longer. So he had two options at his disposal. The first option was that he could just send in his armies and he could crush them into submission. That was option one. Always an option, right? Option two is he thought, you know what? If I could give the leaders of these territories, the former leaders, because they don't really lead it anymore, but he was going to say, if I could give these leaders the opportunity to save face with their people, then you know what? Maybe I can get under their good graces. And so this became known as Pax Romana, or Roman peace. And it was a very simple idea. Basically, if you were a territory of Rome, you could send an envoy of your leaders to Rome and you could get an audience with the emperor directly. You could actually speak directly to Augustus. The only requirement was that beforehand you presented an olive branch. Now, what does an olive branch stand for? It stands for what? Peace. Now, do you know in the Bible, this is where Genesis comes in handy, where the olive branch as a symbol of peace comes from. Do you know the story? It's the story of what? Noah and the ark, right? Noah floods the earth, there's the boat, right? And then he sends out a dove and the dove comes back with what? An olive branch in its beak. So, olive branch, you hand it over. What does it represent to them though? This is important. It represents that you are submitting to imperial authority. In exchange, Augustus would listen to your needs. He sat down, he listened to you, and then he basically would say, look, I want you to know that we've written everything down that you said, and we're going to have a representative from Rome who is attentive to and lobbying for your needs specifically. And everybody's like, that's great, right? And what that led to, because he did this, was the longest period of peace in Rome's history. Basically, the entire time that he ruled, it was a time of peace. Now, one of the areas that Rome oversaw was an area known as Judea. And Judea was very important because it was an economic thoroughfare. So you can see right up there, all those lines that you see on the screen to your right, those are trade routes into and out of the African continent and into and out of Saudi Arabia, what we know today, right? Those are really, really important. So they wanted to hold on to those, right? So in order to hold on to them, they have to have somebody who's leading that area. And the person who they chose to lead that area was a man known as Herod the Great, or King Herod. And the reason why they chose him is because his father was good friends with none other than Julius Caesar. This is why he was brought to power, is because his dad and Julius Caesar were buddies. This is why it's really important to know the history of those two things, because Herod, he plays a really big role in Jesus' birth narrative, right? You following me? You're getting the links so far. All right, so I think it's important for us to take a little bit of time to talk about King Herod. Who was he? Because, like I say, he's a pretty prominent figure in all of this. So he's a very complex man, because he was both a very good leader in many ways and a very brutal leader all at the same time. And so we're going to get to the good stuff in a second. Let's start with the brutality first. So what happens is Herod comes in and he ends up taking over Jerusalem in around 37 BC. He comes in with his armies and he ends up, as he goes through the city, he takes them over. He comes in and he basically decimates all of his political foes. 
But then he does something very unexpected, which is that he ends up killing 46 of the 71 priests who are part of what's known as the Sanhedrin. Now, you're probably sitting there saying, I don't know what that means, the Sanhedrin. You do know the Sanhedrin a little bit, though, because the Sanhedrin is basically the governing body of Jerusalem. And when Jesus is sent to the cross, you may remember, Good Friday, he is sent to, initially, the Sanhedrin. That's where he goes to, and then they send him on to Pilate. So they are the governing body. Now, he comes in, and he ends up, he doesn't just arrest these guys and put them on trial and execute them. You know what he does? He sends his soldiers to their houses. He, they break down their doors, and they murder these priests in front of their families. So this guy, he was sending a very specific message. You're either with me or you're against me, and if you're against me, this is what's going to happen to you. It sent a very clear message, and they got that real fast. And so essentially what he was doing was he was consolidating power. He wanted everybody with power to be loyal to him. And so what happens is he comes into Rome after he consolidates it, and he rules over this area of Judea for the next 33 years on behalf of Rome. Now, given that that's the case, once he takes it over, he is given a title. And that title is known as King of the Jews. It's very important. You need to remember that. He's called King of the Jews. So I want to tell you a few little tidbits about Herod. Because these tidbits are going to come in handy later on as we start getting further into this series. First tidbit you need to know about Herod is that even though he was called King of the Jews, he wasn't actually born Jewish. So... When he took over, he converts to Judaism. So he doesn't actually care that much about Judaism. Why does he do it? He does it because he wants everybody to say, oh, yeah, you're like me, right? Like, he converts over and he follows, like, loosely some of the kosher laws. But he doesn't really care that much. Which, as you might imagine, what does it do? It puts him at odds with people who are, like, really serious about their Jewish faith. And he wasn't. He wasn't that serious. And for good reason, he wasn't that serious. Because here's the thing about people who took their faith super seriously. In Judaism, they wanted to maintain the purity of their culture. Do you know what I mean by that? So if you were very, very Jewish and you had children, you would say, you're not allowed to marry anybody who's not Jewish. That still happens with Orthodox and ultra-Orthodox Jews to this day. They say, like, to their kids, you can marry anybody you want as long as they're Jewish, right? That's the important thing. So... Herod, he was the exact opposite of this because he didn't like the fact that it could be such an insular culture, right? When you're only marrying your own people, it's very insular. You're very wary of outsiders, right? He was very different. He loved Greek and Roman culture. So it's called Greco-Roman culture. So he, he had like traveled. He had seen all these things. And he was like, I liked this. He liked Greco-Roman theater. He liked Greco-Roman art. He liked Greco-Roman cities. And that's what he wanted to do in Judea. He wanted to bring all of that Greco-Roman culture to Judea and make it a place that people wanted to come and see. But you can see that there's a tension there, right? Because if you're a super religious Jew, do you want all these people coming in and influencing you? No. But he was really smart in the way that he went about doing this. So what Herod does is he begins this massive building campaign. Massive. And what he decides to do, the first thing he's going to build is he's going to expand on the Jewish temple. He's going to make it bigger and better than it ever had been before. So that's 
the Jewish temple. You can see it up there to the left. That's what he expanded it into, right? Now, if you're a religious Jew, is that fantastic for you? Absolutely it is, right? Because what do you do at this temple? You go and you worship, right? You sacrifice animals when you go in there so you can be forgiven. Like, it's great. And in fact, to this day, if you go to Jerusalem, you're going to find that part of that addition is still around. It's called the Wailing Wall. Everything else has been knocked down, but you can actually go and see this to this day, which I find to be kind of amazing. So that's what Herod built. That's the part that's still there. So in order to build this thing, though, I mean, you can see how massive this thing is. Does that look cheap to you? No, it's not cheap. So what he does is he has to raise taxes a lot, like a whole lot. But nobody complained because he was employing thousands of laborers, right? He's making all these jobs. And then secondarily, he's giving them a first-rate temple where they can worship their God. You with me so far? Okay. Now, at the same time he starts building this thing, he starts building all the other stuff that he wants to build also. And nobody's going to complain about it because why? Giving him the temple, right? So he starts building amphitheaters so that he can have wonderful productions of plays. He loved plays. He wanted to see those plays. So amphitheaters, so he could have all these things going on there. He starts building ports because you need to have boats that can get in, right? If you want people to come in, you got to have people there. He started building lavish cities for the wealthy. He wanted a place where you could come in vacation. So he started building all these things. And he built fortresses. Why did he build fortresses? Because he wanted a place to hide in case anybody wanted to kill him, which he worried about all the time. This leads me to my second little tidbit that you need to know about Herod, which is that he was super paranoid about losing power. So... <clears throat> An important thing to understand about him, and we know this historically, he was so paranoid about losing power that he murdered his own wife and son because he thought they were going to take power from him. He actually had about 2,000 guards, 2,000 soldiers, who were his personal security detail. And some of them were with them, but you know what the rest of them did? They were out in the population and they were spies. They were listening. Is anybody trying to cause a rebellion? Is anybody trying to assassinate him? And if they found out that anybody was trying to do that, guess what? They would arrest you and put you away. So you get a little sense of that paranoia this morning from what we were reading in Matthew, right? I mean, you get, you get a little sense of that, of what's going on. And just so we're clear here, both Matthew and Luke say that Jesus was born during the, the reign of King Herod. So that's, that's what they agree on there. So in Matthew's text, what happens is, the, Jesus is born, the Magi come in, right? Which So technically, we're in Advent. We're not supposed to talk about Jesus being born yet, but I don't care. So anyway, he's been born, and the Magi come in, and Herod, he's like, hey, you know, when you figure out where that baby is, you know, just send me word back and I'd be more than happy to go pay him homage, which of course is impl implying that he's going to send his soldiers to basically murder the kid, right? Now, I think it's important to say that historically, we don't really know whether or not Herod actually ever heard of Jesus's birth. We don't know. It says so in the Gospels. We can't verify it any other way. But I will say this, I've actually studied Herod pretty closely as a historical figure, and I think even if he did know that Jesus was born, I don't think he would be super worried about it, and here's why. 
So you have to think about it. At this point, Herod's at the end of his life. And how long is it going to take for this baby to grow up, to actually take power? It's going to take him decades at the least, right? So, and if you also study what's happening at that time, you figure out that Herod, he had a lot more pressing issues going on. Like he had actual adults who were trying to kill him all the time. So if he hears about a baby who's going to possibly grow up to be a king, I'm just going to tell you historically, I don't think he would probably care that much about that. That would be low on his list of priorities. He was paranoid, but he wasn't crazy. So this is how he ruled his area, though. This is why he was called the king of the Jews, right? Which is an interesting thing. He's called king of the Jews, right? That's his title. Do you remember when Jesus comes before Pilate? There's an interesting little interaction he has. Now, Herod, by the way, he dies not long after Jesus is born. And then 30 years later, Jesus is before Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate says to him, he says, hey, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, I love Jesus' answer. This is going to be important. He says, you say so. Now, why does Pilate ask him this question? Well, Jesus calls himself the Messiah. And that word Messiah in Hebrew means king, right? So what's happening in the scripture? What's happening is you have two kings of the Jews, right? Herod and Jesus. But they have very different management styles, do they not? All right. So Herod, his management style is you are going to do what I say when I say it. And if you don't, I'm going to use force and violence to make you submit to my will. Yes? All right. Jesus... That is not his management style. Jesus is kind and gentle and meek and humble. And for Jesus, his way of dealing with things is he says, if you would like to submit to my will, that is your choice. You may choose whether or not you would like to follow me and be under my rule. And I think that this is so amazing because when you think about it, right, what it, when Pilate asked Jesus that question, are you the king of the Jews? And he says, you say so. You get a say in whether or not Jesus is your king. And I think that idea, that concept, is so incredibly genius. Like, to me, that is the genius of Jesus' messiahship, is that you get to choose whether or not you're going to follow him. Because think about it for a second. If I come up to you and I say, do this for me, you're going to do this, and if you don't, I'm going to come after you, what is your immediate reaction to that? You're going to be like, uh-huh, yeah, I'm not going to do that, right? Because your immediate reaction is no. Your immediate reaction is resentment, isn't it? You resent when somebody tells you you have to do these things. And that's what happened to, to Herod. Why did he have to worry about people coming after him all the time? Because he was trying to force them to submit to his will. And of course that's going to create resentment. And of course that kingdom is going to fall as a result. But when you get to choose whether you want to be part of the kingdom, and when you get to choose whether you want to submit to Jesus' will, well, that's a totally different story, because you can walk away whenever you want to, and you can enter whenever you want to, and that kingdom will never fall. And so you have two kings of the Jews, Herod and Jesus. And so I pose a question to you this morning, which is, who is your king? Who's the ruler of your mind? in your heart? Who's the person who determines how you live your life and how you make your decisions? And I know some of you might be sitting there saying, well, I don't really have a king one way or the other. I make my own decisions. And I would say, that's not true. We all have somebody 
So there is something out there that pushes us forward. And I'll give you some examples of what I mean by this. So for some of you here, it's a political leader or it's a political party. Because what do you do during your week? I know that there's a number of people who during the week, they listen to the radio all the time, they watch the news all the time, and they're listening for the message from that party. And I know for some people, you don't care about politics, but you're going to listen to other people. You're going to listen to celebrities. You're going to listen to actors. You're going to listen to comedians. You're going to listen to thinkers. Those are the people who you're going to be allowing to speak to you because you want to hear from them what they have to say about the world. And for some of you, you might sit there and you say, well, for me, it's Jesus, right? Because I think about his teachings and I think about his way of being and it's right underneath all of my decisions. Now, the question I pose to you is, who is your king? Now, you're in church. What are you supposed to say? You're supposed to say it's Jesus, right? But let me help you with this answer a little bit. Because here's the thing. I'm a pastor. I literally think about Jesus all the time. All the time. And it is really, really hard for me to put Jesus' teachings and his way of being at the forefront of my thinking. That's hard. And I do it literally. I breathe it 24-7. And it's hard for me to do it. And the reason why it's hard is because Jesus' way of life is challenging. It's not natural to who I am, right? It's not natural for me to want to be selfless all the time and to serve the needs of people all the time. That's not my natural way of being. It's not natural for me to love the people who are against me and to try to embrace them with grace. That's not easy for me to do. But Jesus calls on me to do those things, and so I try to do them. And the only reason I can do that is because I'm constantly thinking about it. But here's the thing. For many of you, how long are you here during the week? You're here at this church for what? Like an hour? And then even if you're getting up in the morning and you're reading a devotional, you're doing a Bible study, are you really thinking about it all the time? What is feeding you in your mind? And I'm going to say this, and I know people are going to get pissed off because I say this, but I think it's true which is that if you're, taking, if you're watching any kind of 24-hour news program, I don't care whether it's liberal, moderate, conservative, turn that stuff off. Because that stuff right now is just feeding your mind. It's feeding you. And you just need to get rid of that and get it out. Because that's going to influence you way more than one hour here on the week and sitting here for you know doing a 20-minute devotional in the morning. If that stuff is feeding you, that's going to be your king. There's just no other way about it. So if you really want Jesus to be your king, when you have the inclination to watch that stuff or to look at that, you should open your Bible and actually read what he's talking about there. Because unless you're reading it and thinking about it all the time, you can't have it as your king. You may want to say Jesus is your king, but to actually do it is a completely different thing. And so I think our first step on the road to Bethlehem, in my opinion, it's for us to make a decision. Who is our king? And if you're going to say my king is Jesus, which I hope you will, I hope that you'll actually make the decision to try to take his teachings and make them a part of your mind and your heart and that you'll take the time to really believe in the things that truly matter so that we can be a group of people who creates God's kingdom here on earth. Amen. Thanks for listening. And if you want to learn more about First Presbyterian Church of Arlington Heights, please visit www.firstpresah.org for more information on service times, directions, and to learn more about the First Pres family of faith.